Thanks for listening to the weekend message from Abundant Life Church. Most weeks on the podcast, you'll hear teaching from our lead pastor, Jeremy Jernigan. We have campuses in Oregon and Washington and are committed to giving ourselves to make the gospel good news for others. Find out more about Abundant Life Church at alcpnw.com. Well, good morning, church. It is so great to be with you. Uh, to those in the room with me, to those of you who are watching or listening online uh, through a podcast or through our YouTube channel, so great to have you guys as well. My name is Jeremy. I'm a lead pastor here. And uh, if you are new, I want to welcome you to Abundant Life. We are a church about giving ourselves to make the gospel good news for others. And we're going through a series right now through the Gospel of John. And so hopefully, if you're at one of our campuses, you got a, a, an actual journal. I want to encourage you to get that out and go to week two of your journal. And we encourage you to use this each and every week, that this would be a guide for you to write things down. Uh, hopefully there's some challenging new ideas you're hearing each week and you can go deeper throughout the week and, and hopefully in your life group as well. And you can bring this to you with your life group and we've given you a number of tools in that regard as well. If you go to week two, you'll see a spot to take notes. Uh, today's message title uh, is Buckets of Water and you can write that down under week two. And if you ever wanna reference this message later back online, uh, you can find it that way. In our Bibles today, we're gonna be in John chapter four. So if you brought a physical Bible with you, that is awesome, get that out. Uh, You probably have a bookmark there in John if you've been with us. Uh, If you've got a Bible app on a phone or a device, I encourage you to get that out as well, and you can read along with us. Well, I'm incredibly excited, uh, like bursting at the seams to to preach this one, uh, because I wanna share a story today, and as I have uh, been preparing for this, uh, I have uh, really seen this in a new light. Now, again, I I was a Christian as long as I can remember. I grew up in the church, my dad's a preacher, Uh, I was baptized in third grade. I've been around this for a long time. I've never heard a sermon preached uh, like I'm going to preach, and so I'm incredibly excited to share some some things that I have discovered, and, and I think a really beautiful way Way of understanding a story. Um, but what it means is, if you have grown up in the church, if you've read your Bible a lot, uh, when we get to our story today, you're going to go, oh yeah, I know all about that story. I know what that story is. And, uh, and it might be really hard for you uh, to even hear a different vantage point, and so you're going to go, whoa, I don't know about that. Now, if you're new and you're not real familiar with the Bible or with church, uh, this is going to be easy for you. You have an advantage because uh, you go, yeah, that makes sense, and, and that's all good. But for, for the rest of us, there might be a little bit of challenge to go, well, I've never thought of it from this point of view, um, but if you're anything like the other services so far, I, I think you're gonna do okay. I'm reminded of what one theologian says, and I think this is true for the way a lot of us learn. It says, our vision is often more abstracted by what we think we know than by our lack of knowledge. Usually it's what we think we know that stops us from growing. Now, I already know about that. I, I, I'm convinced about that, right? And that's where God's like, yeah, yeah, but just keep looking. Keep, keep exploring. Uh, when you know you don't know something, like I have no idea, you're open, you're teachable, you're, you're humble about it. But when you think you know, that's when we, we get in these dangerous spots. And so I'm gonna encourage you, don't assume you know everything there is to know about this passage. I hope that I can share it from a a unique perspective today that that I think you'll find a lot in there. Now, because it's gonna be a little bit weird for some of you, I wanna give you a metaphor uh, to help you go, all right, why, why is this going to be a little bit different? There are times where we are convinced we know what we're looking at, and there are times that we can be convinced in that and be wrong. Now, there's an artist around the world that is uh, trying to prove this in a variety of ways. His latest is that he's trying to uh, articulate how we put too much, uh, really, of our, uh, our, like, our belief, I guess you could say, into our phones. And in particular, what our, the data our phones tell us, we just assume is true. And so this one guy wanted to mess with Google Maps. 
And he wanted to say, you know what, when it comes to Google Maps, and I'm certainly guilty, whatever it says, I do it. You know, I turn left, I'm turning left. And you know, sometimes Michelle and I get in arguments over this. I'm just gonna trust whatever Google Maps says. But this guy wanted it to uh, illustrate that Google Maps can be wrong. Now to do that, he created a, a unique experiment. He got 99 cell phones, activated them, and hooked them all up to Google Maps, put them in a little red wagon, and wheeled them across the street to show what would happen in the app in real time. And so I wanna show you part of this video. Uh, it's a lot to, to, to you know, figure out what you're watching, but you're gonna see four different boxes. Uh, in the top right box, he's gonna put real-time Google Maps. Now, if you can see it from where you're sitting and depending on how good your eyesight is, you're gonna watch that in real time turn red. And that's what you can see, what this guy doing this little wagon thing on the bridge, how it's affecting the app in real time. Check this out. What a jerk. <laughs> I mean, can you even imagine? Like, imagine you had to take that route uh, to go to work, and you're like, wow, this is gridlocked. So you go a different way, and you're like 30 minutes late for work. Like, what happened? You're like, I don't know. Traffic was so bizarre. And then you watch this video. You're like, wait a minute, you know? Or imagine that you're like, hey, that's the only bridge I can take. I gotta take it. And so you're expecting to be gridlocked. And then you drive by, there's like no cars with this weird guy in a wagon. You're going, what is going? I mean, it would really mess with you because you'd be convinced, I know what I'm seeing, and you'd be wrong. And that happens to us a lot in life. And so today, what I wanna, I wanna submit an argument for you to consider that I think we are wrong in the popular way we have understood the story we're gonna read today. Now, I wanna offer you a different way to understand it that I think makes far more sense, but here's the deal, and if you've been around here for a while, you've heard me say this, you are welcome to disagree with me. If at the end of today you go, nope, not convinced, keep your, your uh, other way of looking at it, that is totally fine. I'm just gonna tell you, I think what I have uh, discovered as I've studied it more makes far more sense to me than the version that I was given, and so I'm gonna offer this to you to consider for yourselves if you think it makes sense as well. Some of you are a little afraid right now, and that's okay. All right, so let's get into John chapter four, and you're going, what on earth is he about to say? Well, you'll find out. John chapter four will begin in verse one. It says, Jesus knew the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing and making more disciples than John. This connects to last week's passage. Uh, if you were there with us, you go, oh yeah, I remember that. If not, you can watch that online. It says, though Jesus himself didn't baptize them, his disciples did. So he left Judea, and he returned to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria on the way. Eventually, he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar near the field that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. This is the setting 
of our story. Jesus has made a far walk. He's tired. He's going through a Samaritan town. Uh, these are all important details. It's around noon in, in the day. Now you're going, okay, well, what's the big deal about Samaritans? Most of us don't understand a ton of that. Uh, that's a huge detail of context to set up the story. So let me try to illustrate briefly uh, what, what would you need to know about Samaritans? Well, they have a lot in common with the Jews. They were uh, essentially keepers of an ancient faith. Uh, they had a fourfold creed. And so if you want to understand the Samaritans, here's a really brief way of understanding them. They believe that there is one God, which is Yahweh, that's the, the God of the Old Testament. There's one book, which is the Torah, which is the first five books in particular of the Old Testament. There is one place uh, of worship, where, this is where you worship God, on Mount Gerizim, which is right next to where this story is taking place. So uh, the Samaritan village is by Mount Gerizim because they believe that's where you are supposed to worship God, Mount Gerizim. And there's one prophet, Moses. And Moses is the guy uh, that, you know, that God has used for all this. So this is a way to understand the Samaritans in a nutshell. Now, if you compare the Jews to the Samaritans, the Jews essentially would agree with two of the things on this list. They would say, one God, Yahweh, yeah, that's great. One book, Torah, yeah, that's great. One place, Mount Gerizim, whoa, whoa, whoa. The Jews would say, not a chance. This is Jerusalem, not Mount Gerizim. Now again, for us, uh, this is like not an argument that we get hung up on of where can you actually worship. To them, this is a centuries old argument. This is a very big deal for them. Is it Jerusalem or is it Mount Gerizim? They, they uh, debated fiercely on this uh, topic. And then on one prophet, the Jews would say, yeah, Moses is great, but you have more than Moses. You have other prophets in the Old Testament. You have Isaiah, you have lots of in Jeremiah. Uh, so they would not just say there was one prophet. They would say there's more than one. And so here's what's a little tricky is that from afar, you go, you guys look pretty similar, right? Like there's not a ton of difference here, but what you have to understand is they hated each other. They hated each other. They would not talk to each other. They would intentionally avoid one another. And, and when you find out why you're going, that seems a little bit weird. And so I understand that seems a little bit weird. I'm gonna give you an analogy. This is not a perfect analogy, but it may help you understand a little bit about what is this contrast here because it plays into the story. If you're a, a sports fan, you know there are often rivalries in sports. And if you follow one team, you usually have uh, a nemesis team, right? The team that is your rival. I happen to be a diehard baseball fan and I like the New York Yankees, which means there is a rivalry that is the greatest rivalry in all of sports uh, is the Yankees and the Red Sox. And uh, if you understand this, you, you've seen these games are always really fun to watch because these two teams do not like each other and the fans do not like each other. And there's a whole lot of tension there packed into every game. Now, what's funny is every now and then someone will hear that I'm a Yankees fan and, and they'll say funny things to me like, oh yeah, I like the Yankees and I like the Red Sox. To which I'll say, oh, you're not a baseball fan. <laughs> you don't know baseball, okay? Uh, because if you understand baseball, you know that you cannot help yourself. If you are a fan of either of these teams, you cannot help but get caught up into this drama. The other day, I kid you not, I don't remember where I was. Uh, I was talking to some stranger about something. We were, I don't remember what I was doing. But he literally, somehow, the topic of baseball came up. I said I'm a uh, Yankees fan. He said, oh yeah, my mom is a diehard Red Sox fan. And without even thinking about it, I said, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> I don't know where that came from. It's just, it, it just happens, you know? It's like, I, I don't know. But here's what you gotta understand. Like, this, this is just like a tension, and you, if you're a fan of either of these teams, you just get it. You, you understand it. Now, through, through uh, my maturity and my pursuit of Jesus, I have realized 
that Jesus can unite me to Red Sox fans. And that is how great Jesus is. And we have a variety of Red Sox fans in our church, which is the power of the gospel. Hallelujah, amen. But if I didn't have Jesus, eh, I don't know. It might look like a different story. Uh, There's just a a rivalry there and, and you've got to understand. Now here's the deal. If you put me as a Yankee fan in a room with a Red Sox fan, okay, we will have so much disagreeing going on. Like, you're wrong about this and this and this and this, and what about this? I mean, it's just all of this, that's how it's going to work, right? But here's what's interesting. If you put a Yankee fan and a Red Sox fan, and then you added a third fan in, but the third fan doesn't like baseball, the third fan only watches football. Here's the irony. Now, as a Yankee fan, I'll have more in common with the Red Sox fan than I will with the football fan, because at least the Red Sox fan got the sport right. You know what I mean? Like, you're a baseball fan, you got that part good. The football guy's like, what, what's wrong with you? You missed it, you know? And so this is like a little bit like this tension here. They don't like each other, and from afar, you're going, you look pretty similar, uh, but when they're together, they hate each other, and there's animosity. They did not talk to one another, okay? So that's just like... File that away, you gotta keep that in mind for the rest of the story to make sense. Now, here's what I'll tell you. In the setup we just read, John is artistically giving us a detail as a storyteller to understand the point of the story, and I'd like to suggest that we've all missed this detail collectively, okay? Now you're going, what detail? I didn't miss a detail. Uh, We already read it, I wanna show it to you again. This is John chapter four, verse five. Notice the big, huge hint that John is giving us. Verse five says this. Eventually, Jesus came to the Samaritan village of Sychar near the field that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. Did you see it? You don't see it yet, okay? You're going, what is he talking about? He's lost his mind. This is a huge, huge hint John is giving you and I of how to interpret the story he's about to tell us. You're going, what are you talking about? John is introducing another character into this story. You're going, which character? Well, to do that, you have to know what would they have thought of when John brings up this detail. Now, again, you and I are not as familiar with the Old Testament as were the Jews in this day. So the original audience, uh, they would have understood the Old Testament far better than we do. So when John brings this detail to mind, we're like, big deal. Why are you giving us that much detail? We don't need to know exactly where the field was or where the well was. Just tell us what happened. But John is bringing to mind something that the original audience would have went, oh, I know. I know about that. Now, who's the character that John is introducing? To know that, you have to connect this verse back to the Old Testament to go, what do we know happened here in the Old Testament? Well, to to know that, you have to go to Joshua chapter 24, verse 32, which says this. The bones of Joseph, which the Israelites had brought along with them when they left Egypt, were buried at Shechem in the plot of land Jacob had bought from the sons of Hamar for 100 pieces of silver. This is the context John is now connecting to in this story. So what I think John is doing is introducing a silent witness to the story. Who's the silent witness? The bones of Joseph. Now, are you with me? This is getting a little bit weird, right? And going, what do you mean, the bones of Joseph? So I think John is doing as a storyteller, okay, which again, you have to understand, John is intentionally putting these details together, is he's drawing to mind the story of Joseph because he's saying, hey, remember that the bones of Joseph are where this story is happening. So now they're all going, oh yeah, Joseph, we remember what happened to Joseph. Now in case you don't know what happened to Joseph or you're a little bit hazy on that, you can go back to the book of Genesis, chapter 37, uh, and it begins to tell that story. 
Joseph is a story about a guy who follows God and has almost nothing to show for it for the majority of his life. So Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers. You would think, wow, that's, that's pretty bad. That'll ruin your life. That wasn't it. Uh, after that, he works his way up and he has a master and he, he, he is very faithful to his master and his master's wife decides that she wants to sleep with Joseph and Joseph says, no way, I, I would not do that. So then uh, she accuses him and then he ends up thrown in prison as a result of that. He's going, seriously? Like I, I do the right thing and now I'm in jail and he's in jail for a while. And after a while, he, he has this vision that he gives to another guy from God and he says, hey, you're gonna get out of jail soon and will you put in a good word with me and Pharaoh and let Pharaoh know that I helped you, I, I, I assisted you. And so he thinks this will be my break and that guy gets out through the help of Joseph and forgets about Joseph and Joseph stays in jail for many years. You're going, Man, what a break for this guy. It's just bad thing after bad thing after bad thing. But here's the weird part, is that eventually he becomes second in command to Pharaoh and he saves the entire nation of Egypt from a famine. So Joseph is like the underdog story of the Old Testament, right? That God uses eventually to be incredible. But the majority of Joseph's life is very hard. It is incredible disappointment, incredible heartache, incredible pain, and that's the story of Joseph. Now you're going, why is John introducing Joseph as a silent witness to the story? Here's what I think John is doing. I think John is trying to connect our minds to the person Jesus is going to talk to in the story of Joseph. Okay, so I'm gonna prime you for that because I think that's what John is doing. He's priming his audience going, remember the story of Joseph, keep that fresh in your mind as you witness, as, as you read, as you hear what is about to take place. And John is trying to get us to, to notice, are there any parallels? Are there any connections between the bones of Joseph, the story of Joseph, and what's about to take place? So with that in mind, let's read the next verses. Verse seven, soon, a Samaritan woman came to draw water and Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. Now, Jesus crossing a number of lines here. Uh, it's a guy talking to a woman in that culture alone you did not do. And it, more importantly, it's a Jew talking to a Samaritan. Remember, Red Sox, Yankees, like, you don't do this. These, these two groups do not talk. They do not get along. The woman was surprised for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman, in case he hadn't noticed, right? Why are you asking me for a drink? This is inappropriate. This is not how this works. Why are you doing this? Why are you asking me for a drink? Verse 10, Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you were speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. Now, Jesus is about to make this conversation really weird. He does it in a variety of ways. This is the first way he does it. So now she's going, okay, I'm confused. You asked me for a drink, and now you're telling me if I knew who you were, I would ask you for a drink. That doesn't make any sense. Why, why would you ask me for a drink then if you already have a drink and you're offering me a drink, right? You get it? So she's going, this is confusing. I don't understand it. So she tries to work this out. Uh, Sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said. She's looking at the obvious details. And this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? 
How can you offer better water, great phrase, better water than he and his sons, remember Joseph, and his animals enjoyed? Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water. Then I'll never be thirsty again and I won't have to come here to get water. This is gonna be great. And then it gets really weird. Here's what Jesus says next. Go and get your husband, Jesus told her. You're like, whoa, that's, that's a weird detail. Why, why is he saying that? Well, uh, check out her response. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband. For you have had five husbands and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Now, here's where we go. Yep, I know about this story. I know what's going on. Uh, Jesus is giving her the business. He's calling her out going, whoa, whoa. I know all about you. I know about your sins. How dare you? And he's giving her a laundry list of things. Now, a lot of attention here is given in the, the way we understand the story to the time of day. It's noontime. Noontime is not the ideal time to go and get water from a well. It would be way too hot. You would wanna do this early in the morning. Why is she doing it around noon? Well, what we know is she's avoiding people. Okay, we, we, we know that. She's drawing water at an unusual time of the day. And likely, uh, she feels marginalized from the rest of the town. That, that's often why you would do what she's doing. But here's the thing. We've got to stop and ask, why? Why does she feel marginalized? Why does she feel like an outcast? The traditional explanation, if you've not heard it, is that this is an overly sinful woman who Jesus is calling out on her sin, and that is why she's all alone at noon, and that is why Jesus has to tell her all the sins that she's done so that she can repent and she can understand that she is in the wrong and she needs to fix her life before Jesus can give her this living water. That's the way the traditional explanation goes. I would like to suggest, I think we're missing it, and I think there's something much better happening. Now, how should we view her situation? Well, we have a few details, but we don't have a lot of details. So either way, we have to use our imagination and, and, and figure out why did she have five husbands? Why is she living with someone who's not her husband? We don't know why. So you can have a variety of explanations. I, I've already given you the common one, but here's uh, some other explanations. Maybe uh, her husbands had died. That would be another way of understanding if she had gone through multiple husbands that they maybe have died. Maybe her husbands had cheated on her and left her as a result. Okay, so that's a couple ways of understanding it. Let me give you what I find personally to be the single most compelling way to understand this story, and I think it brings the story to life. Here's my take, okay? I think that this woman was unable to get pregnant, unable to have children, and as a result, five husbands left her. That's my take. You're going, wait, what? I think she could not bear children. And as a result, five different husbands said to her, you can't give me what I want, I will move on to someone else. Now you're going, where, where do you get that from? Well, if you understand the culture here, you understand that our traditional way of understanding this, I think falls apart rather quickly. For example, we say, yeah, but she had five husbands. This is certainly something Jesus is pointing out. Here's what we don't realize. In this culture, women could not initiate a divorce. Couldn't, by law. Now, in our culture today, husband, wife, man, male, female, whatever, anybody can initiate a divorce. We're just used to that. So we assume that Jesus pointed this detail that she had everything to do with. 
But in this culture, she would not have been able to initiate five different divorces. It would not be in her control to do. It would be the control of her husband. And, and we know, we can read the Old Testament law of what were they bound to when it came to their ideas of marriage. In fact, let me read this to you. This is Deuteronomy 24. This is from the Old Testament. This shows the culture in which she lived. This is from the Torah, the first five books of the Bible that both Jews and Samaritans adhered to and lived by. Ready? It's Deuteronomy 24. Suppose a man marries a woman, but she does not please him. Now, if you're noticing the patriarchy here, you're noticing it well. This is all about the men. Having discovered something wrong with her, he writes her a document of divorce, hands it to her, and sends her away from his house. That is how easy it is. Husbands, if you don't like your wife, you just write her a little letter, send her on her way, you're done, you're free of her. When she leaves his house, she is free to marry another man. Oh, good, this will be good for her. She gets a second shot at it. Nope, wrong. If the second husband also turns against her, writes her a document of divorce, hands it to her, and sends her away, or if he dies, the first husband may not marry her again. Why? For she has been defiled. That's in your Bible, in case you're wondering where I got this from. This is the culture that they were living in, both Jews and Samaritans. And you can quickly notice some parallels to this woman's story and the law of Moses, of what was given to them. This is how it works. It is completely dependent upon what the guy thinks, not upon what the wife thinks. And so if we know she had five husbands, I think it's far more compelling to say it was probably something that the husbands decided uh, was not worthy of, of you know, being married to. And what would be a better reason than she couldn't produce a child? which in that culture was one of the key roles, as it is often today, of what we expect out of a wife. You should be able to be a mother, and many women can't. And this woman likely could not have a child, and her husband, after her husband, after her husband says, then I don't want you, writes her certificate of divorce, sends her on her way, she tries again, she tries again, she tries again, and realizes nobody wants me. Now you go, okay, Jeremy, what about the other detail? Jesus says that she's living with a man who's not her husband. What about that? I love this, because what we're doing is we are reading into it what we assume is happening, right? This is premarital sex. She's living with her boyfriend. That is sin. Notice it doesn't say that. It says she's living with a man who's not her husband. It doesn't say they were affectionate. It doesn't say there's anything involved with that. This could be an extended family member because she's a vulnerable woman who has been defiled in this culture. Maybe she had to live with an extended male in her family for protection and for survival. Maybe it was some other type of an arrangement with a man that was undesirable to this woman and not affectionate, but it was in order to survive. There could be lots of explanations here. And, and we quickly assume, no, it has to be sinful, but the text actually doesn't say that. So rather than Jesus looking at this woman and giving her a laundry list of her very worst sins, which is very uncharacteristic of Jesus, I think what's happening is Jesus is looking intently at this woman and saying, I know all of the pain of your story. I know it all. I know what has been done to you. I know the way that you have considered yourself, how you have thought of yourself. I know the things that these husbands have said to you. I know how you have been devalued by these men, devalued by this culture. And even as a Jew who you think, I'm not, I'm not for you, I'm against you, I see you. Can you imagine what this woman had to feel just having someone look at her intently and know her pain and know 
her story. The author, Parker Palmer, says, the human soul doesn't want to be advised or fixed or saved. It simply wants to be witnessed exactly as it is. I think there's something about us. We can have our image, we can have our identities, but when you get down to the soul, who am I really? Who who am I at the end of all of this? We just want someone to see us, to recognize us. And I think Jesus looks intently at her soul. I think it's the first time a male had ever looked at her this way, had ever really seen her, not for her inability to have children, not for her inability to be loved by a husband, but for who she is. And she's responding in this moment. Now, again, consider this in light of the story of Joseph you begin to see obvious parallels. Joseph's story is very similar to this woman's story. If she had been wronged and neglected and abused despite her best efforts, you can see how this could be very similar to the story of Joseph who had nothing to show for all of the ways that he tried to follow God. He tried to to live faithful. And yet maybe John is going, hey, see this woman from Joseph's point of view. See this woman the way that we see Joseph's story. And if you put her in that point of view, then you begin to understand what Jesus is saying to her. We'll go back to chapter four and go to verse 19. We see her response. You can only imagine after being known the way that she is just known, how does she try to grapple with this? Well, you gotta remember, she's talking to a Jew and she's a Samaritan. She's gotta work this out first. So sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it? that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship, while we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worship. Again, I don't think she's being flippant here. I think she's going, hey, I wanna believe you in all this, but you're still a Jew, and we got this huge like, issue here that's been centuries old, and, and how do I get past that? Jesus replied, verse 21, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. She's going, Jesus, it's not gonna matter anymore. It has mattered for centuries. We don't talk to one another. We hate one another. What do you mean? It won't matter soon. What? This is like crazy talk. It's like, hey, don't worry. It doesn't matter if the Red Sox or Yankees, are. they're the same thing. No, it matters, right? If you're one of them, it matters. You don't say to a Samaritan, it doesn't matter where you worship. That's one of the huge defining qualities of what it meant to be a Samaritan. And Jesus just quickly says, it's, it's not gonna matter. It, there's gonna be something else. And you can imagine this woman's going, what is this guy saying? What is going on? Check out verse 22. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship. Well, we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes to the Jews. But the time is coming. Indeed, it's here now when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, okay, um, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Okay, yeah, okay, so this is like, sounds crazy, but I've heard about this Messiah guy, and, and maybe what you're saying, when he gets here, then he'll be able to help this all work out. Notice this, then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. Can you even imagine what that had to sound like to this woman? She's sitting here processing this going, this guy talks crazy. I'm trying to understand what he's saying. And then she brings up the idea of Messiah and Jesus says, I am he. 
you're talking to him. You can only imagine this moment. Just then, his disciples came back. They were shocked to find him talking to a woman, but none of them had the nerve to ask, what do you want with her, or why are you talking to her? The woman, catch this, left her water jar beside the well. That's the whole point, why she's there. Left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village. Jesus never told her to do this. Ran back to the village telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. Now, let me give a final fatal blow to the traditional argument here. We assume that, that this is a, a woman who's going, oh my goodness, this guy knows all my sins. He, he, he must be a prophet. So she goes running in town going, hey, come see a, a guy that told me all I ever did. Here's what I ask you. If this was the town's most sinful woman, would the entire village come streaming out because of her? If this is your outcast of your village that's like, oh, stay clear of her, she's got a messed up life. Would the entire town come streaming to see someone no, they go, Susie, everybody knows what you've done, right? Why are we gonna go see this prophet? He, we don't need a prophet to tell you all the things that you've done wrong. We all know it, right? It would be commonplace. You would not go running to see someone who knew all of Susie's sins. But what if this woman had been so beaten down, so demoralized, by her situation, by husband after husband rejecting her, but out of her inability to have children, that her default posture was depression. What if for years she had been the depressed woman? And so she's the social outcast. She doesn't know how to get along with everyone. She's not fun to be around because whenever you're around her, all she is is depressed. But then for the first time ever, they see her with joy on her face. And they say, what? on earth happened to Susie, because I've never seen her like this. Susie is the depressed woman in our village. What happened to her? We have never seen her joyful before. Something had to take place, and they come running out to see who messed up Susie, because we have not seen her like this. That, to me, is a far more compelling explanation of how this one woman could get the entire town to come out and see what was going on. The pastor and author, Judah Smith, describes like this. Remember, she was at the well in the blazing heat of the noon sun. This was to avoid people and not be seen. She left seeking people, the ones she had been avoiding. What just happened? Something dramatic shifted in her. It was not just, oh, Jesus knows my sins. That wouldn't have changed her. But a depressed woman who suddenly has found joy would pique the attention of everyone else in the village going, what has she found? What could possibly do that to her? I have got to meet him. Whoever can, can alter someone like that, I have got to meet him. So the entire village comes streaming. Jump down to verse 39, we get to the conclusion of this story. Many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because the woman had said, he told me everything I ever did. When they came out to see him, they begged him to stay in their village. So he stayed for two days, long enough for many more to hear his message and believe. Then they said to the woman, now we believe, not just because of what you told us, but because we have heard him ourselves, now we know that he is indeed the savior of the world. 
If you go back to the story of Genesis, the story of Joseph, you see that God allowed terrible physical, psychological pain to happen to Joseph, terrible social injustices to happen to Joseph. And yet, through all of those, God used Joseph to get healing to himself and to those around him. Is it possible that John is telling us the story of another person like Joseph that had dealt, been dealt pain, been dealt suffering, been dealt social injustices, and yet this is a story of God's mercy and compassion to bring healing to others through pain. See, if you know the story of Joseph, God used Joseph's pain to bring healing to the entire nation of Egypt. And as you look at this Samaritan woman's story, God used her pain to bring healing to her entire Samaritan village. It is hard not to see the obvious parallels when you look at these details. You go, this is what John is setting up. Another woman like Joseph is here, and this is how Jesus responds to people in pain. So I wanna ask you the question today. What pain have you experienced? What pain do you bring in with you today? For some of you, it's, it, it's right there. It's on the surface and, and you're, you're trying to keep it in check. For some of you, maybe it's, it's a little bit deeper and, and you're hesitant to, to revisit it because you don't wanna let it boil back up to the surface. But I wanna encourage you with today is that Jesus knows your pain. Jesus sees you at the soul level not what everyone else sees, not what has been said about you, not the value that culture and, and others have given to you. Jesus sees you, he knows you at that level. And Jesus wants to take the worst of what has been done to you, the worst pain that you have experienced, and he wants to heal you and heal those around you through it. Now, if you wanna write things down, here's one final thing I encourage you to write down. I believe this, that pain takes on a purpose when given to Jesus. That is the invitation for you and I, pain takes on a purpose when given to Jesus. If you just decide to hold on to your pain, there is no redeeming quality in that. It is just suffering, it is just miserable, and, and many of us, we just, we just sit in that moment. But if you will give that pain over to Jesus, you will invite Jesus into that. You will watch what Jesus can do with your pain, how Jesus can bring healing, Jesus can work profound, beautiful miracles out of the very worst that has been done to us, the very worst of what we have experienced. Now here's, here's one thing to close on. Do not miss this. Nothing about this woman's situation was changed that day. If this explanation is accurate, she did not suddenly have the ability to have kids. She did not suddenly find a husband who would love her for who she is. Nothing of that changed. She found joy in the midst of her pain in the person of Jesus. And that is available to you and I today. Now, it might not change the situation. It may not change what had led to this pain, but you can find joy in the midst of your pain if you experience Jesus like this and you watch what Jesus does with your pain. I wanna give you one final quote to close with. This comes from uh, a woman who is currently battling cancer and is keeping her eyes focused on Jesus in the midst of this pain, in the midst of questions that she does not have answers for to go, what is going on? And yet, she gets this message. She gets this idea of how would Jesus use a pain even like that? I close with these words, she says. I love when people that have been through hell walk out of the flames carrying buckets of water for those still consumed by fire. That's the choice for all of us. When we go to this well, 
and we get buckets of living water and we meet someone who knows our pain, we now have these buckets of water to bring to others who are hurting too. And I think that is how God wants to use our pain. So I'm gonna invite you to do is please stand with me. I wanna close us in prayer and then we're gonna sing a, a final closing song that is a chance for you to respond to this message. Because some of you, and I've already heard the stories this weekend, some of you, you, you've got a lot of this pain and you don't know what to do with it and you're just sitting on it. And it's an opportunity for you, an invitation for you to begin to give that pain to Jesus and say, Jesus, what do you wanna do here? How do you wanna bring healing to me and healing to those around me through the very pain that I'm holding on to? And I encourage you, invite Jesus into this and watch what he does when he does what only he can do. Let's pray together. Jesus, we recognize the pain that we're carrying. We also recognize that you are uniquely qualified to do something with it. Like you did in the story of Joseph, like you did with this Samaritan woman, you take the very worst of what has been done to us, the very worst of our pain, the very worst of our suffering, and you bring healing. You bring something beautiful out of it something so unexpected, so out of the norm, and yet this is how you work. And, and so it's a chance for us to, rather than just bearing this pain or, or, or pretending like it doesn't affect us the way it does, we can actually give you uh, control of it. We can invite you into it. We can lay this down before you and ask what you wanna do here. And we will realize as we come to you for this living water that we got buckets of water to share for those who are in need around us. God, may, you, may we see this gift that we have in our pain, something that we would never choose, we would never want. And yet in your hands, it becomes something beautiful for the healing of others and healing of us. May we be a church, may we be a community that looks to see how you can use this for the good of those around us. May we invite you into our pain. We pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen.